Welcome to Composers in a Jukebox, a podcast that brings together a special breed of musicians in a conversation about their craft. We're overjoyed to be chatting with Christina Leung today, one of Asia's most sought-after film and media composers, whose profile is decked with awards and nominations, okay, including okay, we, we, the... We, we, we gotta wait. Yeah. So, remember, some of our fans will be from, like, you know, Taiwan, China and stuff. I think we should have, like, a Chinese translation of that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Just a heads up, my Chinese sucks. <laughs> oh, that's why I'm doing it. Okay, let's go. Huanying Hello. Welcome, welcome. Hello. <laughs> oh, I miss Taiwan so much. I when I was studying there, I had so much bubble tea. It's food, so right? <laughs> and yes, and the food <laughs> and and the fried chicken. It's so good. I'm so sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I I empathize. I love bubble tea too. Well, the Taiwanese ones are the best. Although I haven't been mm-hmm. to Taiwan yet. True. <laughs> <laughs> it's from Taiwan anyway. It is. <laughs> yeah. One day I'll bring you guys. Just go try like Usulan or anything, but let's. We're getting yeah, off topic. Of course. So what we'll what what were your what were some of your favorite bubble tea brands in Taiwan? Usulan. Usulan Coco. Okay. Oh. Coco, yes, Coco. And what are some of your favorite bubble tea brands in London? Or there's none. <laughs> <laughs> it must be expensive, right? Yes, it's oh at God. least seven to eight pounds. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> but anyways. Let's get back to the topic. So we're here with Christina, and we have prepared some questions about your music, actually. Great. So from what we heard from your albums, there's a lot of like Chinese influences in your music. So what is your composition process on the fusion of Western and Eastern music instruments? Uh, well, before I answer that question, I have to uh, introduce a little bit of my background. Uh, I start piano at six. And then at uh, age of 11, I picked up uh, electric organ. We call it electone. It's the Yamaha uh, instrument. And then uh, and later on in high school, I was majoring uh, in erhu, which is the two-string Chinese instrument, and then minoring in uh, the bamboo flute. So, you know, I had both uh, Chinese music background and Western music background in the same time uh, throughout my early uh, uh, life. And, but, you know, when I went to the States to study my bachelor's and my master's, I sort of forgot about, you know, Chinese music uh, during those times. And But later on, I think that was in the uh, year of two, 2000, uh, my teacher just, you know, hired me uh, for some project that he was doing. And he said that, oh, you know, we, we have a very dope project, you know, it, it's about uh, fusion or crossover. Uh, so we want to blend uh, Chinese uh, music with Western uh, instrument. And I was thinking, huh, okay, because at that time, it's 2000 or 1999, even, you know, no one was doing those kind of things. So I was thinking, hmm, okay, maybe I could I could do something. But you know, the the Chinese music was already out of my mind for so many years at that time. So I had no idea what to do. But he just you know sort of pushed me uh, to you know think 
more of you know like blending to those two words together and then uh, he said that you know maybe we can just uh make chinese sound more modern and then maybe make the western sound slightly outdated you know <laughs> and then we can blend them together to make them communicate so that that's that's why i start do, uh, doing those kind of music and so the process of uh, western and eastern music uh, for me is throughout a lot of uh, experiment uh, with melodies, harmonies, and different sets of combinations of uh, instrumentations and all that. So I think uh, all in all, it's all about experience. Oh, that's such a very good background. Like, it's really cool. Yeah, incredibly rich. And I think, um, Christina, from what I understand, you, um, you did your, was it undergrad and postgraduate? Yeah. In the US? Right. Yeah. You know, it strikes me on quite a personal level as well, because, um, I mean, I was born in Singapore. I spent a number of years in Singapore. And um, the musical culture in Singapore is, uh, you know, it's quite... Um, it's very, ethnic. also with a lot of uh, varieties. Yeah, it's, it's quite ethnically driven, but also there's a lot of fusion in there. And so, you know, that that whole fusion sound world is kind of in is within me in, in, in some um, aspects. But at the same time, like because um, we're a podcast composed in a jukebox that is based in the UK and most of our listeners are kind of, you know, um, listeners from here. Could you share with us some of the composers or musical artists who inspire you? And we're thinking quite specifically um Asian artists from from that other end of the world, just to sort of broaden our uh, knowledge on on that well, as well. Well, to be honest with you, when I was doing this kind of fusion uh, music, because that was already two decades ago, and not a lot of people were doing those kind of things. So uh, my pe uh, my uh, teacher Peter and I, we were kind of like the pioneer in this kind of uh, music. So we, we didn't have a lot of uh, people to base on or to be uh, inspired by. So we were pretty much on our own. You know, we were just doing all kinds of things and trying out all kinds of different uh, ideas uh, to make this kind of music work. So I, I couldn't say that uh, who influenced me or, you know, I, who I was inspired by. But I would say, you know, m more and more people are doing this sort of music. So, you know, nowadays, if you go onto uh, iTunes or, you know, like YouTube, you can pretty much find a lot of uh, uh, younger generation who's doing this kind of music in it with out outstanding ideas, you know. So I, I think you can just, you know, try try that. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. It, it is getting incredibly popular. True. Well. Yeah. So, uh, in terms of like orchestration and composition concepts, so, we, uh, you know, I also try to merge, you know, do a fusion with like Chinese and Western instruments. I did that on my previous album as well. So, I would like to hear from you, like, what are your top strategies to blend the two worlds of instruments? Like each culture of instruments have a different tuning system, intonation, right. playing style, right. resonance. That's why it's a bit like difficult to merge the two of them, especially like when they have two different styles, I guess. True, true. Um, you know, the funny thing is that I always tell a lot of people that um, uh, with traditional kind of instruments, you know, uh, they have birth deficiencies. 
what I mean by that is, you know, like the the projection, the volume projection is so is not loud enough to compete with the Western instrument. The range is so tiny. We only have got like two octaves or two and a half octaves, you know, of one instrument. And also the timbre is also very different. And, uh, you know, even tuning systems that, like you mentioned. So with all kinds of, you know, those things that you have to solve the problem, uh, it's really, you know, hard to blend those two together. So when I uh, first formed my, I had a fusion band, you know, uh, in starting from 2018, but we already dismissed uh, in, uh, sorry, 2008. And then now it's already uh, uh, dismissed in 2018. We, we were only going on for 10 years. But, you know, when we were, playing together or rehearse together, it, it, all kinds of uh, funny things happened. For example, like uh, the electric guitar, when they plug into the uh, the speakers, they they just blow everyone away. And I, I mean, Erhu just cannot compete. Chinese bamboo flute cannot sound. I mean, no one can hear, you know, the Chinese instrument. The electric guitar just powers everyone, you know, off. So it, it, it was really hard to, uh, to think how how to you know make them work. So you know in the, at that time I have to think about miking even you know like how to place mic to make the Chinese instrument sound uh, beautiful and sound like a more come you know compatible with uh, with the uh, uh, Western instrument and those those kind of things. So it's really really you know hard and so. Again, you know, I have to try a lot of uh, uh, try to you know make them work, and then try to use all kinds of combinations. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it really doesn't. And um, and also, like you said, the styles are very different because you know most of the traditional tunes are based on pentatonic uh, scales. And then, uh, but if you want to rearrange the traditional piece into somewhat modern piece, you have to rethink of the, the harmonies, the languages and everything to, to, to make it work. So uh, when I try to compose or to try to arrange things, I always have to think, for example, uh, I have to, you know, try to think what's the final goal. Uh, if I, I was doing a uh, folk tune, then I will first break down the melodies and to see if any uh, better way to harmonize it towards more modern language. And then um, if it's playable even, you know, by the traditional instrument uh, in terms of range, styles and characters. And then if it's all doable, then I will, you know, try to combine with, uh, you know, the other Western music in to to make them work. That's you know, as far as the arrangement goes. But for the original composition, I usually, again, think of the goal and target that I want to hit. And then I will, you know, take, uh, I will think what to do. Um, you know, take the example of uh, Crazy Explosion from my uh, latest album, Eternal Journey. Um, I want it to be a metal song. So a lot of people just say that you're crazy. Chinese, uh, Chinese music or Chinese instrument just cannot play metal. But I really wanted to be a heavy metal. So <laughs> I said, no matter what, I want to do it anyways. Uh, so before I start writing the music, I have to come up with some stories. 
because I, I guess, you know, I've been doing uh, film music for more than two, two decades already. So uh, without stories or without anything, I, I just cannot compose, you know. So I always have to come up with some kind of a story and then try to make the music work or fit into the stories. And then, um, uh, so I start out with the uh, sad ballad in the beginning and then working my way up to the heavy metal. And when the first part of the metal, uh, the, the first metal part, um, I was thinking that, you know, I let the, you know, guitar and bass and, and keys and drums go crazy. And I think I really also want to incorporate some Chinese instrument to go crazy with them. But it, it's just very hard. So I have to flip through my mind to think what kind of instrument that can com even compete with the, those, you know, power instrument. So I, you know, came up with sona. You know sona, right? Yes, yes, yes. It's a great loud. instrument. Yeah, very, very loud and very penetrating uh, reed uh, Chinese instrument. So I used that, and guess what? It worked. I was so happy. It's like finally something <laughs> can compete with the electric guitar and the drums and all that. So uh, after that, um, I built a bridge. And the, the bridge, I just let all the uh, rhythm sections rest a little bit. And I put just some kind of uh, like Indian flute uh, to like calm down things a little bit. And then after that, the bridge, you know, the, the second metal part comes in again. And then it just, you know, goes, you know, right on top of the roof. You know, it's just really, really crazy. <laughs> and then I recap back to the set uh, ballad from the beginning and then do a little variation to end the music. And so when that worked, I was so, you know, so happy and, and yeah, it's just, you know, yeah, that's one of the, the, the example of the process that I was doing uh, with this kind of music. Kind of switch gears a little bit from the orchestration uh, talk and things like that. Could you talk about your piece, uh, Mrs. Oyster's Take Five, and the collaboration on that? How that came about? Uh, yeah, the original Take Five, as you all know, it's by uh, Paul Desmond and uh, performed by uh, Dave Brubeck Quartet or Quintet or Quartet, and it's, it was already a very famous jazz classic piece. And why? You know, I have to collaborate those two together. It was a funny story because um, Mrs. Oyster was a traditional uh, Taidong Diao. It's a tune from Taidong, which is the east coast, southeast coast part of Taiwan. And 
So this tune was very famous. Almost everyone knows this tune in in Taiwan. So when when I you know first wanted to rearrange Mrs. Oyster, I was hesitant for quite some times. I I would say probably six months. I was in hesitant because I was so afraid to touch such a famous piece. If I did a good bad job. You know, everyone will hate me. If I do a good job, of course, you know, you know, that would be awesome. But I wasn't sure if I can do a good job, so、um, I just put it on hold for you know a few months.、Uh, and one one day、uh, before I step into a shower, I was listening to the radio, and the radio it was a jazz radio, and they were playing uh, um, uh, Take Five. And I was thinking, wow, I haven't heard that song for a while, and th- it's awesome. It's just awesome melody, awesome groove, and five four meters. My God, I was just so enjoying it. And then when,、uh, so you after you know listening to the song, I just step into the shower and then you know like very happily、uh, showering.、Mm-hmm. And then、uh, the the of course you know the the rhythm just linger in my mind. And then it's like boom 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 ba da boom 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 boom. Instead of you know da 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 boom boom boom, it just came out with、uh, Mrs. Oyster's. Melody like dum dum da dum da dum dum da da dum 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 da 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 dum dum bum 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 ba da bum 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 bum. I was like, oh my god, it worked! It just like came out of nowhere, and it just miraculously just worked. And I was thinking, oh wow, that. You know, maybe I can do something about it. So I just tore myself off, and then immediately、uh, rush to my keyboard, and I start, you know,、uh, putting them together. And I just have to twist a little bit of harmony, and then it just worked and perfect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I can totally understand your reservation because it's such a famous tune that you're worried. You know, you might mess with something people love. But you know, I listened to to your version. Um, in in kind of your transmutation of it, and it really does work. So congratulations on that because <laughs> I, it was one of the first jazz standards I ever learned. So I have that original melody in my head, and、uh, yeah, you you did a great job kind of remixing it. Thank you. It's always the shower thoughts that get yeah. Like, <laughs> <Yes> . <laughs> do you find do you find that that's a that's a thing that happens to you a lot, Christina? Where when you're just、really. doing your own thing and. <laughs> Not really. That、yeah. was the first, <laughs> and probably the only. <laughs> oh, who knows? Maybe you have more. You know, you're gonna keep writing. Yeah. Well, I guess. <laughs> yeah, because I like it's it's funny because it seems like a lot of composers, you know, they they kind of sit down and they really think and ruminate about their music, and then it it comes out. But having you know been around musicians from like who come from more pop backgrounds and stuff like that, they it seems like. Their compositional process are a lot. It tends to be a lot more spontaneous, where they just, you know, they think about a melody while walking on a street, and they record themselves singing it on their phones, and then it it ends up in the final piece. It's、yeah. interesting. It's a very, it's a very much more different spontaneous it's, it's process. It's not my process. I mean, I yeah, my music doesn't come out that way. I wish I could though. I mean, because it's like very inspirational, and you gotta get it from the God or something. You know, it's really <laughs> awesome. <laughs>
let's move on to uh, After Red Cliff. Um, that's an intense soundtrack that fuses Chinese and Western orchestration. So a lot of what we were talking about earlier. Um, so what I would be interested in hearing is, um, could you share how much of that was actually notated and what was uh, improvisation? It's all noted. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, well, I have <laughs> did to, not expect that. <laughs> yeah, I have to admit something because I was trained classically throughout my life. So improvisation was never my forte. And the funny thing is that about the Chinese uh, musicians or Chinese music, uh, they were never trained with any of the improv skills. So it's simply not in the Chinese music language to do improvisations. So uh, when I first, you know, writing something, uh, I, I always have to write things out for them to act like if they, you know, just improv some melody. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, even I have another version of the Mrs. Oyster's Take 5, uh, which I let the Chinese instrument do the solo turns, and but they all cannot do the improv, so I have to write out all the notes for them to memorize. And But the only people who can do real solo was the guitar, the bass, and the drums, <laughs> and then the, all the Chinese musicians, they were all like noted, yeah. Oh, yeah, it, it is quite interesting the the difference between people that can improvise and can't because sometimes, you know, with, with classical players, there are people that are, you know, in their 40s, have PhDs in, say, piano performance, can play any classical repertoire, but can't improvise at all in a certain way. And like, not because they're not, uh, don't naturally have that ability, but they've just literally never attempted it in the, in mm -hmm. the first place. True. I, I'm kind of like that. I, the, the thing is that because with the classical uh, pianist, I'm so afraid to play wrong note. And you know, like with the improvisation, you have to play, sometimes you have to play wrong note to make <laughs> it work, you know, but I, I just, you know, I, I'm so afraid to, to, to do that. So I just sort of give up, you know. <laughs> That's why He's I become a composer. With because... conviction. <laughs> yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So and that's is, why I become a composer, you know, because I, I really have to write things out to plan things out. I really just cannot, be, you know, uh, be free. One of yeah, a teacher of mine in the past used to say that it's not exactly about the errors that you make along the way, but what you do after the errors in an improv. True, true. And how, and how you pick it up from there. And funnily enough, like as a composer in a jukebox crew, we did engage in an improv a few weeks ago as well which was i mean surprisingly if i may say freeing like yeah, it's just yeah. you know it just felt so like everything just flowed and it turned out a lot better than expected and that was why like it's it was such a memorable 17 minutes <laughs> it's awesome i i always you know wish i could do that yeah, because I enjoy listening to jazz so much. And I also, you know, often go to a live concert. And when they doing that, when they are in the zone, you know, I was like, oh, my God, I wish I could do that. <laughs> I, th I think everyone between jazz and classical people are sort of jealous of each other because I know a lot of jazz players that go, oh, I wish I could sight read like classical players. I wish I could, you know, have those skills. So I think it's one of those like grass is always greener. You kind of wish you could do the other song. <laughs>
so for the documentary The Road Less Traveled, it's uh, about a boxer about like struggling to you know be in his job. I I understand it's like very difficult to find a living as a boxer <laughs> in Taiwan. I, I I mean I watched the whole thing. It was quite sad, honestly. But oh, you did? Yeah, okay, that's uh, yeah, nice. Yeah. <laughs> I really like it. Great. And it's quite sad. <clears throat> yeah. And yet the music is very tender. So could you tell us about your creative process that resulted in this beautiful sound? Okay. So let me uh, sh uh, shortly just you know, talk about this film. Um, it's about a story uh, and a uh, investment banker uh, who gave up everything to become an MMA fighter. And he's challenging not only himself, but also everyone around him, you know, to get out of the safe box because, you know, he used to make a lot of money because he used to work for Morgan Stanley. And so, you know, they really, those dudes, they make fortune, you know, but he just for, you know, becoming a MMA fighter, if you win the competition, then you get your award and your money. And if you lose, you go home with bruises and broken bones and everything. So it's really uh, tough to make such decision from making a lot of money into making almost nothing. You know, so uh, for me, this is a very inspiring movie. And when I first got this project, I was so happy because, you know, uh, I really learned a lot from Jeff, you know, this, this fighter, his name is Jeff. And the tender part of the music uh, portrays the emotion sides of Jeff towards his mother, his friends, and his love life and, and everything. And because he decided to become a fighter, uh, his dad doesn't talk to him anymore. Just they're no longer talking. And, and then also because of that, uh, uh, the, his parent just divorce, you know, from each other. And so it, it's it's also quite sad. It's not revealed in the movie, but um, uh, the one part that that's that was re uh, revealed in the movie was he used to be married, and also because of that he got divorced because his wife just wouldn't understand why, you know, you have to do this. <laughs> and yeah, so um, the music is more towards you know revealing this you know inner part of him and not the 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 fight scene. And of course, I I do write some like huge brass sound for the fight scenes but uh the the tender part is more like you know towards him especially when he uh, retired in the uh, indonesian champion on the rink and that was the big moment you know for his career and then you know uh, when he approached him and then thanking him for you know winning the game and, you know, for me, it's so humble and so down to the earth, you know, uh, and he he's not like, like, okay, I beat you up, you know, so I'm such a great a fighter or something, you know, he's just so humble. And, and I think that's really about, you know, the, the philosophy towards fighting, why you fight. It's not about win or lose, you know, it's really about, you know, the philosophy, you know, like you have to be peaceful and then you have to know why you fight. You just don't fight like, you know, like teenagers, you don't fight for nothing, you know. <laughs> so I, I, so I use trumpet as a melodic uh, tool to paint his childhood memories. And uh, in the meantime, adding a, a guitar line to portray his loneliness uh, of being a fighter. 
and for the fight scenes, I use a whole bunch of you know huge brass sound uh, to introduce that you know he's about to go into the fight and to support the heroic heroic moment of the fight. Uh, yeah, so that's pretty much it. You know, something that kind of reminded me of this story is actually I know I when I was interning um, in Los Angeles for a composer, there's another guy interning who was the same exact thing, worked for Morgan Stanley in New York, left all that to be a film composer, which, you know, <laughs> similarly not well paying at the beginning. But he was uh, he was working, you know, this very low paying internship. But he was so passionate about doing this and now he's doing really well. So it was it was kind of inspiring because he was like a guy in his early 30s. He had played piano and studied composition in his undergrad, but then got into investment banking. And yeah, he really had this kind of unique perspective because he'd seen this whole other world of making, you know, a lot of money and realized that didn't make him happy at all. So kind of a, a similar story. Yeah, for Jeff too, you know, he decided to become a fighter when he was 32. So that was also very late for a fighter, you know? Yeah, I think what was in, like the most, some of the most interesting bits of the documentary, um, in, in my memory at least, were those bits like that happen, so scenes that happen after fights where, you know, he would either win or lose. And then, you know, you see them just fighting so aggressively on the um, in the ring. And then the, the moment they come off or the moment the fight ends, you know, the two competitors are like best of friends. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they, That's the you know, <laughs> very most attractive part about, about it. You know? Yeah, yeah. And those those are the bits that really struck me like, oh, well, <laughs> yeah. So it was... <laughs> it so was, you have to know why like, you fight, you know? <laughs> exactly. And it's just, uh, I mean, sportsmanship, that's such a, you know, it's... it's 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 a it's a word that's that's used and no one you know almost to a point where it's kind of arbitrary but that's when you really see some (laughs) chivalry and sportsmanship so yeah could i actually so could i ask you a question that's uh, it's a small question but a little bit off script Mm -hmm. um it seems like you know a lot about jeff's background and stuff that weren't exactly shown um on screen when you scored this this documentary and when you're on that project, did you have a personal um, connection or interactions with Jeff, the boxer, by any uh, chance? Yes, only after I'm done with the movie. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> I actually met him several times after afterwards, and then we did several podcasts as well. Oh, cool! Oh. Yeah, and was that was that part of the process, or was it a like? You know, was was that a natural part of the process, or was it like a conscious decision to not be in touch with the, uh, with the people? Not that I, I think he was quite busy at the time when I was doing uh, the composition, and so we didn't had the chance to meet. Then, otherwise, I would love to you know talk about uh, talk to him about you know his life and all that. But uh, the uh, the director. Uh, was a very good friend of his. So, you know, he pretty much knows him inside out. So (laughs) he told me everything. (laughs) Even things that's not supposed to be revealed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's pretty pretty interesting because we were like two days ago, we were just recording another podcast with um, a composer by the name of Matthew Slaser, who has also done a fair amount of documentaries. And we were talking about how much, like as a composer, how much knowledge should you have um, about 
the the characters or the situations that you're scoring for because on one hand um you know a person's life is so complex there's so much going on and um a documentary at the end of the day is in some way uh, a piece of drama where there is perspective and it, it captures a uh, you know selected moments of their lives and so as a composer you're meant to highlight those perspectives but it also is incredibly valuable to know more. <laughs> true, true. Um, well, for me, it really helps uh, to score more uh, or to score deeper into the the movie project if you know more about the behind thinking of the you know the guy or you know the director. So that way, you know, for me, it really helps. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, so sort of going, sort of moving on beyond this documentary and just looking at um, your life as a composer, sort of on a, on a more global level, if I may say, <laughs> um, what do you think is the differences or the similarities between um, the film composing industries and by extension, your practice as a film composer in Asia versus in the West? Oh, I guess it's very different, especially in Asia um, or, you know, about Taiwan. Um, the director is also the producer, the executive producer, the editor, <laughs> the possibly uh, the dubbing mixer, you know, because they, they don't have a lot of money and probably not a lot of uh, investors. So they pretty much have to do everything by themselves. And all because of that, they are sometimes, you know, not sometimes, oftentimes just way too close to their own project. And they cannot be uh, objective, you know, on seeing their own project. So when we as a composer, you know, come into the project, that would be very, very difficult because, you know, they would probably already tempt some music, uh, uh, you know, into their editing. And then uh, after that, they ask you to do something. And then whatever you deliver afterwards is no go because they are so in love with their temp music. <laughs> so it's really hard to fight, you know, against that. So it's really almost all the cases. It's like that. So now nowadays, when I work with a new uh, director or even some of the directors I've worked, you know, on several projects already, I always just tell them, please, you, when you do the editing, just, you know, just take out all the temp. If you can see your project without any temp music and then you find it interesting, that means you, you are succeeding, you know, with your project. And if you still need some kind of music to to go along with it and thinking, you know, that's that's good, then it's it's really not good. So it's really, really difficult. And uh, well, I mean, I last time I, I did a US project was two uh, no, actually 2020, the last documentary I did uh, for a, a indie film in Hollywood. And it's really different because the director just lets you to do anything that you want. And yeah, of course, they, they have some, you know, advices or, you know, some suggestions, but you, you can always communicate, uh, you know, objectively. And then they, they will take your uh, suggestion into consideration. 
but as a, as a, opposed to uh you know like the chinese or the taiwanese directors they just don't take anything from you at all they think they're you know thinking is the best <laughs> <laughs> that must be so that must be a struggle like just to convince them to like open up a little bit yeah it's and <laughs> one of my uh the the director that i you know worked on his project for i mean several projects already and he just loves sati everything he has to attempt with sati i was like it could be worse choices though <laughs> <laughs> at least it's sati <laughs> yeah that was i, I mean like I mean, my French partner would be very happy about it, though. Oh. <laughs> Is he a Sassy fan? Oh, he loves his uh, demeanor. He, lo oh, he loves okay. all the French composers. Oh, oh he's French. Yeah. <laughs> it's fair. Yeah, Sati was weird, though. <laughs> oh, I weird, love his weird composer. It's, like, it's good, but not everything has to be Sati, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah oh, actually, we, we did, like, a, a, sh a small like uh, posting on our Instagram where we show our studio. So can you kind of like tell us about your setup in your studio? Ah, okay. Well, I mean, uh, in my studio, well, I mean, in our home, we have two studios. One is my uh, composer studio and one is my husband's uh, recording studio. And so my end is very simple, you know, <laughs> my, uh, I have the most basic composer uh, workstations. Okay, I have a Mac computer and I have a universal audio and uh, a pair of uh, Neumann speakers and several keys. I have Rolly 25 and Complete 88 and Yamaha Montage 8. Uh, and that's pretty much about it. But uh, downstairs uh, in our recording room, uh, we have a whole, whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> I, I kind of want to visit now, but I don't really want to intrude. <laughs> Of course, I mean, if you come back to Taiwan anytime, but it's still in building process because, you know, uh, the old studio, which is in my uh, apartment, we sold the, the apartment. So we moved back to my uh, mom's house. Uh, it's a big, uh, you know, like uh, in independent house with front and backyard. So now we're uh, building a recording studio in the backyard. It, it's on a, yeah, ongoing process right now. So it, it should be done probably, uh, either at the, the end of June or beginning of July. Oh, but soon. It's very soon, it's very yeah. soon. Yeah, it's already been almost two months though, because they are building the structure right now. Right, and then lost some proofing, I would imagine, like a lot of like yes. designing mm. and stuff. Yes, yeah. So did, did your husband design all of it? Though? Oh, I see. Like uh, no, recording. it's actually by a, a very good friend of mine. You know, he's a sound engineer, and so he, yeah, he already built several uh, famous studio in Taiwan, like Ninja uh, FF Studio, ma. Oh, Zuo Xing. That's Zuo Xing, yes. Zuo Xing is the, yeah, I, I met him before. He was like teaching in Fujian. I, I don't know if he's still teaching though, but yeah. Probably, yeah. <laughs> But I would say his um, studios are very, very impressive. But that doesn't always mean they're good composers. Like I've, I've met a lot of composers with big, expensive studios and the music's crap, which is, it's good to hear that you have like a, a modest studio because um, you, you don't need it really. <laughs> <laughs> well, I 
mean, we're gonna pay for like you know air or every road to do it. Yeah, what I mean, re- recording studio is something else, but like for the for the composing aspect, is mm-hmm. like, yeah. Um, yeah, you you don't need that to be a great composer. True. <laughs> I I love to keep my workstation as simple as possible. I don't like all kinds of like faders and all that. You know, I yeah. do things digitally. Just everything is in my computer. I only have the the keyboard that I have to play things in. It's it's quite because we as a crew. Um, we run an Instagram page as well, and one of the series that we did just a short while ago uh, was a series called Composers in Their Caves, of which all four of us, um, every Sunday, posted a picture of our setup, our home setup, um, just to, you know, share with the world, foster, communi- for, you know, foster some conversations and stuff like that. And it gradually, like, what I noticed was that it, it got smaller over time. <laughs> Charlene's to mine and then Levin's and I think Luke you were That's you were yeah you were traveling when you sent us those those um pictures and so your 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 traveling rig was just like your laptop <laughs> and like, keyboard keyboard and that was it like minimal uh, it's almost exactly the same as like your basic setup where it's you know it's it's the native instruments S88 and then a UAD audio interface and that's it um, pretty much because that that is kind of all you need the yeah, other thing what more do you want <laughs> yeah the, the other thing too is the amount of composers I see which which is totally fine it's just depends what you want to do that have tons of like analog synths rack mount gear everywhere and you know a lot of it's not even hooked up or uh it, whatever setup they're using to run it is so complicated that they'll never even open a lot of it. No, true, true. Um, we're, we're staying in the realm of like setup for for a bit, or with like the the geeky stuff. Um, so for the ethnic Chinese instruments, um, obviously a lot of that, if if you're using it, is live recorded. But um, when when you're composing it, um, are you are you using any? plugins and if so what are like your your favorites for like doing yes i actually uh do have several um i use uh east west silk quite a lot uh and also uh, uh i think there's a uh, new uh, things from sign player the phoenix orchestra oh yeah yeah that one yeah, is also a very good i love that do you feel validated now i feel validated <laughs> yes thank you jolene <laughs> <laughs> i love that and i think it was i think it was partly recorded in singapore yeah i think so Always yes singapore. it is yeah, yeah so some of my friends were playing on that and so when i use it I'm great like, i'm yeah. playing my friends <laughs> It's awesome. I, I love that. Yeah. So I used to work on, uh, I mean, a lot on the silk, but now I'm mostly uh, doing it on uh, with the, you know, the Phoenix Orchestra. Yeah. And also I have the, uh, the ethnic wor- world. Uh, and also uh, for the best service, I have uh, Peking Opera Percussion and Guzhen uh, Collections and all that. <clears throat> I think I need to look for that one. I don't have baking or opera. Those those sounds are no, interesting. Doesn't, doesn't really yeah, mean, for the jingju. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I mean they can go so hard. It's it's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I also subscribe the East West Monthly, so it's for me the easiest to access. You know, I don't spend a lot of time on you know like pulling all kinds of different uh, sounds. And all that, as as you said, you know, if 
possible I would just get uh, live musicians to record for me. Uh, well, a- a- another thing we haven't really talked about is um, you work with your husband quite often. Just kind of wondering, wh- what is that like? How does that work? How's that collaboration work? Uh, I'm often just the composer and he is the orchestrator, sound engineer, recording engineer, and uh, <laughs> musician, uh, the copyist. <laughs> so he works for you. Yes, he works for me. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to tell my partner to take notes. <laughs> well, Jolene's partner works for her too because he's a violist and violinist, and he uh, oh, records on her scores. Yeah. See, teach him That's how to orchestrate and do all the all the other yeah. stuff. Then there you go. <laughs> he does my contract too, which is yeah. Well, see, manager. that's the best. <laughs> got someone in house. <laughs> I also like the collaboration. Like, since like he also orchestrates your things, does he like? consult you on like oh how should things should be or he has like a standard workflow that kind of works with you uh well the thing is that i mostly try to uh do my job as complete as possible so i would probably do 90 percent completion already and then leave 10 percent for him to figure out whether you know the the vc here is better or you know those kind of things you know so uh uh but he knows me fairly well so sometimes without uh, asking me he already know what to do and he'll just yeah do it and if if I wrote something that's very unreasonable, then you will raise the question. <laughs> yeah. What's your sort of top tips in, in terms of striking a good work-life balance, balancing, you know, family, husbands, <laughs> um, children, children and, yeah. and your compositional life? Well, as far as children goes, uh, I have to thank my mom for that. You know, she really take big part of it. You know, she, when we're in a busy schedule, recording things and, you know, and all that, uh, she will just step in to do all the job. <clears throat> yeah. And then as far as, uh, but, you know, we always, because the uh, kids has, uh, you know, summer break and winter break. So we always utilize uh, the, the breaks, the long breaks to uh, travel somewhere to, you know, like relax, really relax. But sometimes, you know, uh, we still have job, in, in, you know, during the, the break. So it's really inevitable to take the job out. We'll still do it, but we'll still leave the time for us to go somewhere. So, you know, I mean, a lot of times I, you know, I wrote uh, some Chinese opera uh, when we were having a, a trip in the Alps or uh, writing a musical, you know, in the Caribbeans on the boat. <laughs> <laughs> Those kind of things. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I really have to, you know, just leave some time for myself to cool down. Otherwise, it's just too much. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like Take breaks. you know all of us are in the risk of like getting a artist block if we don't work, if we if we don't rest. I think. Yeah, take breaks. <laughs> I've I've learned that just very recently as yeah, well. Don't do that again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, we, we need to take our own advice. <laughs> <laughs> I saw like a hypocrite now. <laughs> Unfortunately, sometimes you can't take breaks, depending on when the deadline is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we all know the feeling. But if you can, it's great to do. <laughs> yeah. Or like, have someone to remind you, like, hey, you need a break. Yeah. 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 That, that, that's also important. 
Yeah. Yeah, and also I I, I try to do something to really relax uh, relax my mind. You know, I I I do free diving. So you know, whenever I'm oh. under a huge stress, I just had to I rush to the ocean and then I just you know do free diving to relax myself. Wait, that's. Places for you to do free diving in Thailand. Oh uh, yeah, uh, in 那个基隆, 那边, 龙洞那边. Oh, Jilong. Yeah, and so sometimes it... I go down to south to Shaolioucho or to Kanding. <laughs> all the way down south in some small islands. Oh, you love it, guys! It's very beautiful seas. I've seen it, but I haven't been there. Yeah. Unfortunately. Summer holiday destinations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you guys are all welcome to Taiwan, though. Yeah. Yes. We have to thank you so much for you know um, scheduling the time to actually talk to us, Christina. Really, it's no, it's really great pleasure. talking to you guys. It's fun. <laughs> yeah, love, lovely, lovely to have you on board as well. And thank um, you. I mean, you're such a yeah. You, you you have a palette of sound that that hits close to home for me. And so I'm <laughs> yep. Yeah, such an interesting interview. Yeah, absolutely. Very educational. so if you don't want to miss anything that's going on with composers in a jukebox please consider following us on instagram and tiktok it's at composers in a jukebox we've got loads more interesting episodes cooking in the edit which we can't wait to share and so subscribe to our pages on spotify apple podcast and google podcast to be notified of everything that we do (laughs) 